0: You're listening to Seeing and Believing, a film and television podcast that searches for the sacred on screen. I'm Kevin McLenathan, and I'm joined this week by my friend and fellow film critic, Sarah Welch Larson. I'm really excited to have her on the show. Sarah, do you have any pearls of life-changing wisdom to maybe casually drop in here that will cause our listeners to reevaluate the world around them?
1: Um, Yeah, always carry a water bottle with you. Just always have one on hand. <laughs>
0: You you never know when there might be a Shyamalan alien invasion in the works, so that sounds like pretty sound advice to me. Listeners, we are, of course, not going to be pivoting to a podcast that digs into the deep philosophical questions of life. But we are going to be talking about Mike Mills' new film, Come On, Come On, which does ask some of those deeper questions in a very understated way. I'm really looking forward to digging into it with Sarah here on episode 314 of Seeing and Believing.
2: So should I call you like Papa or Dad or just Johnny? You can call me whatever feels comfortable to you. I, I, I don't know. It's just I'm not used to being able to choose. Maybe we can just take this process slowly. And. And, and see, how, see how it feels. Mm-hmm, Yeah. And. I'm just really sorry that your children died. Um. You know, I don't think I can do that part. Yeah, I, I told you that's how me and mom do it. If it makes sense for your mom to do that. That's cool, but it doesn't make sense for me and that's what oh, I was explaining I to you. Why does it make sense for you? Because it's, it's ridiculous. Is it? It's sad. The question is, why do you want to do it? You are just terrible at this. Oh man, I'm trying. Let, let me ask you a question. Why does everything have to be like this kind of weird, eccentric thing I that like you it. do? I like it. but why not just do something normal? Like What's everything normal? in your real life. What's normal? Okay, fine. Good point.
0: Yes, listeners, we're here on episode 314 of Seeing and Believing. And Sarah, thanks uh, again for being a, a good sport about me just springing a question like that on you. Uh, I know that, you know, sometimes you come onto a film podcast to talk about films and not, you know, actually try to... Change our listeners' lives with uh, hard-won wisdom, but you know, I I just, I just kind of went with it.
1: Oh, I'm, I'm here for it. That's great. (laughs) Thank you so much for having me.
0: I'm glad that you didn't, you you decided not to, you know, turn the tables on me or anything. Ask me any, any deep questions because I, I, as we were talking about before we started recording, I'm operating on very little sleep. So who knows what I would have said in response. (laughs) I
1: I mean, I might end up getting some deep uh, truths from you in your sleep deprived state. So I might as well just launch into some of the questions that pop up in this movie. Kevin, how do you feel about the future?
0: Oh, man, the less said about that, the better. Uh, I'm going to just move on from that before we get into some doom and gloom territory. (laughs) Uh, Listeners. We do have Sarah Welch Larson here on on the show this week, and I'm really excited to have her back. She is a Chicago-based film critic, so go Chicago. She's -hmm. also a writer for Bright Wall and Dark Room. She writes and podcasts for thinkchristian.net, and she is the author of the book Becoming Alien, The Beginning and End of Evil in Science Fiction's Most Idiosyncratic Film Franchise. Sarah, we had you on the show previously to actually talk about that book, which mm-hmm. I, you know Wade and I both very much like and were impressed by. And you had also joined me uh, almost exactly a year ago, a year and some change, to talk about "I'm Thinking of Ending Things" and mm-hmm. "The Third Man." And yes. you know, based on on those two interactions, I'm just. I'm so excited to get you back on the show. Welcome back to Seeing and Believing.
1: Delighted to be back here. Actually, um, I think I replaced you once when you went on vacation as well, um, because I talked about Ready or Not with Wade and also uh, the last black man in San Francisco. So Wade got to trade out one Chicago host for another Chicago co-host. And now it's just Chicago (laughs) all the time, which honestly I'm cool with. (laughs)
0: I I I'm cool with it as well, and I stand corrected. Thanks for pointing that out to me. Was that when I was on uh on baby leave? I don't I don't quite remember. Might oh, have been. Gosh,
1: that would have been um, um early October twenty nineteen. So possibly.
0: Oh, no, I I can't even use that as an excuse. I just am am very forgetful. But I'm glad that I have you here to set me straight and uh, that's going to be a really uh, useful skill in the future (laughs) Um, but we are going to move on from my faulty memory and uh, talk about the film that is waiting for us this week one that I think you and I both have been looking forward to for a while it is of course uh, the new film from writer-director Mike Mills come on come on here's the synopsis Johnny, played by Joaquin Phoenix, is a radio journalist whose job is literally to talk to young people about how they see the world and their future. That may seem to make Johnny the perfect candidate to take care of his young nephew Jesse when his sister is taken away from the boy by an unexpected emergency, but Johnny soon finds himself in over his head. As played by Woody Norman, Jesse is a precocious handful, and he and Johnny forge a tenuous but transformational relationship when they are unexpectedly thrown together in a delicate story about the connections between adults and children, the past and the future, and the way that we affect one another. So, Sarah, this is obviously a film that really, in some ways, lives or dies on that central relationship mm-hmm. between Joaquin Phoenix and Woody Norman. So to get us started with the discussion here, I just want to get gauge your reaction to... Uh, how well that relationship works and and what you thought of those two performances.
1: Yeah, it's such a fine line to draw because anytime you have a movie that has a kid the age of Jesse, um, those movies can live or die by the performance of that kid and also um, by the chemistry between the child and then all of the other adult actors around them and i really think that um this is just it's a tremendous movie mostly because of the chemistry uh between woody and uh joaquin phoenix it's just i loved watching the two of them interact with each other i liked seeing the like the little crinkle smiles like the the little crinkle lines in joaquin phoenix's eyes whenever he was smiling at this kid even when he was being incredibly aggravating um and so like it just it felt very natural and lived in and very real in a way that you just don't really see on screen all that much. Um, how did you feel about it?
0: Yeah, I, I agree that the performances work really well. And I mean, I've gone on on record as just if there's there, there's a small number of things that tend to be death for me when it comes to. To movies and one of them is precocious children mm-hmm. i just when it's done badly in a film it just it, it kind of sets in into motion the instinct for me the the animal instinct to like gnaw through one of my own legs to get free <laughs> and get out of there because it's just it's i i, I just can't stand a, a badly written precocious child mm-hmm. um and i think what is so tremendous about come on come on is that mills uh, writes Jesse and Woody Norman plays Jesse as as uh, a very smart kid but he's smart in the way that kids are smart mm-hmm. it's not like you know a lot of precocious children basically are written like adults just trapped in kids bodies and it's, it's, it's mm-hmm. terrible but there's just this unforced this unforced quality to both the writing and the performances that make him feel uh, very much like a boy that you would, uh, would encounter in real life, and I think that makes the rapport he develops with uh, Phoenix's character over the course of the film all that much more touching. Mm-hmm. And uh, it also makes some of the uh, the the character turns and the revelations and the growth that we see all the more affecting because you believe in Woody Norman as Jesse from the very beginning. There's nothing artificial or or movie-ish about it. It's it's the real deal, I feel like.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, he reminds me of like all of those kids who read a ton about dinosaurs and who can pronounce like all of the really complicated Latin names of the dinosaurs that they read about, <laughs> but doesn't understand how to articulate like basic feelings because he's never had to deal with those before. And that just like that feels so true and so right to me, especially when he's paired with this other character, Joaquin Phoenix's Johnny, who knows what he who he is and what he is doing but he doesn't really he's not very good at articulating himself either necessarily and so they they make a very good and interesting pair because the two of them have flaws that kind of complement each other not necessarily strengths that complement each other although their strengths do as well um and i just i loved watching the two of them interact on screen kind of circle each other a little bit try to figure out okay who is this person and what is their deal and why are they so much more different for me and also how are they the same um and i just i loved watching that i i could watch that all day
0: it is a really fun dynamic because you get the sense that that johnny here is you know he he is kind of he, he's a radio journalist he's sort of kind of this npr ira glass like mm-hmm. figure like his yeah. his big project is to go around the country and interview kids about you know what they're hopes are for the future what their fears are you know how they see themselves in the world Mm -hmm. and the thing about that is that it's a dynamic where uh johnny doesn't really have to give anything of himself he's always the one asking the questions Mm. um he's the one steering the interaction and the impression you get as this movie goes on is that he's become maybe a little bit too comfortable with that he likes to he he likes the the intimacy I guess of of asking questions and listening but he's he doesn't do so well when the tables are turned when he has to be the one who answer, answers the questions and there's another person sitting there just watching him with those wonderful huge expressive eyes of Woody Norman just you know watching him waiting for him to just answer and just, you you see the calculations in mm-hmm. Phoenix's face like can I can I get away with with fudging the truth? Should I be perfectly honest? How much can this kid take? And that's there's an electricity there, I guess, to to watch I guess Mills explore uh the dynamics of that relationship, like the the intimacy of asking somebody a question and expecting them to be completely honest with you mm-hmm. and then actually uh, obliging you in that. There is that is uh, a relationship that does require a lot of trust and carries a lot of potential for for good and harm. And that's captured really beautifully in this film. And I was really just glad to see it. and uh, had a, a great time just sitting in those scenes with those characters, watching them. Correct.
1: Yeah, I think one of Mike Mills's strengths is exploring relationships, especially relationships between parents and children, like thinking about um, beginners with the relationship between Ewan McGregor's character and Christopher Plummer's character, and then also all of the little interrelationships in 20th century women, where all of these people are related to each other. They know each other really well, and they still don't know quite what to make of each other. And so... um, I haven't really fully connected, I think, with Mike Mills filmmaking before this one. Like, this is the movie of his that has worked the best for me. And I think it's because I am entering that relationship at the same point that these two characters are entering into relationship with each other, if that makes sense. And like trying to circle around each other Mm. and figure out, okay, um, who are you and what is your deal and why do you drive me nuts and why do I still care about you at the same time?
0: Yeah, I, I, you know, I, I hate to be that person who says, you know, I watched this film after becoming a parent, and <laughs> it, it gave me a new appreciation for it. Um, so apologies in advance, but you know, I, I, I think that there is a lot about the way this film conceives of not just a parental dynamic, but just the the dynamic of of caring for a child and just mm. um having to navigate the 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 deep feeling that you have for this little person even as they might be as you said earlier just completely aggravating and yeah. and just figuring out how you know like do, how do you be honest about your reactions not just uh you know be uh repress uh your your honest uh, feelings about a situation but but at the same time there's this overpowering desire just to uh give the best to this person and to mm-hmm. and to protect them and and nurture them and mm-hmm. there there are a lot of films of course it's not necessarily uh revolutionary uh territory that mills is exploring here but i think that he explores it with exceptional uh, grace mm-hmm. and um, and lack of cliche, I guess. So, I mean, I, it, Woody Norman. It, it, it's easy for like like I mentioned earlier, precocious kid just to be kind of set your teeth on edge. But mm-hmm. the the ways in which Jesse is aggravating and the ways in which he is endearing don't feel like the well trod uh, child child prodigy precocious child dynamic that you often see in these kinds of family dramas.
1: Yeah, I think it's the specificity with how like the specific ways that this kid can be very, very obnoxious um, are also very endearing at the exact same time. Um, and I'm not a parent myself, but I I did quite a lot of babysitting growing up and I have young, younger siblings, so I get a little bit of the like an older relative relationship who is completely aggravated by somebody that they have to take care of Um, (laughs) (laughs) at least on like a smaller scale level, definitely not nearly like the amount of time and care that Johnny has to take um, in order to take care of Jesse. But that specificity I think is, is what really makes this feel so um, thoughtful And I I feel like I hear Mike Mills be described as like a humane director. And that almost feels a little bit too clinical because what so much of what he's doing is taking care to show like the individuality of each of those people and each of those characters on screen. Um, And I think he does this really well just with the setting of the movie, too. Like this movie was shot on location around L.A. and New York City and New Orleans and Detroit. And you can tell the moment you see something on screen you can tell exactly which city it's in and where they are and what's going on. And you can tell that um, this isn't just like tourism. It isn't like a fleeting glance at anything. It's genuine interest in like the specifics of these people's lives.
0: It, yeah, I mean, it might be the the black and white cinematography, but in mm. the New York scenes, I thought a lot of uh, Woody Allen's Manhattan and mm, just how mm-hmm. That film, the uh, captures a certain quality about New York City, just in in its well chosen images and and framing and editing, uh, that I think this film does as well. And I think that extends uh, down to even just uh, little touches. There are multiple times where Mills will um, cut away from a conversation between two characters to uh, a flashback where we see. Uh, Jesse interacting with his, uh, with his father, uh, who, mm-hmm. who's now, uh, you know, absent, he's, he's living in another part of the state. Um, and just the, the weird games that they, they're playing with each other and Mills doesn't try to, you know, linger in that moment. He doesn't try to have a later scene where Jesse explains, oh yeah, I used to do with this, do this with my dad. It's just sort of there to provide a little bit of a, a glimpse of of an entire world mm-hmm. um, in an evocative way that gives the viewer access to it. And I think that he does that, like you said, with the the, the settings and the locales as well.
1: Mm-hmm. Yes, yeah. Oh, And those scenes with Jesse's father, Scoot McNary is fantastic in this movie. And he's he's only in, like, I don't know, a handful of scenes and you barely hear him talk. And I still got the feeling that he was, like, a full and realized and complete person, even though he is in the middle of a crisis, like he's not just reduced to the crisis that he's having at that moment in time. He's so much more than that. And I think you get a lot of that with Jesse talking about his relationship with his father or remembering the things that he's done with his father as well. Like there's so much more and we're only getting a small snapshot of it.
0: I'd be really interested to actually see what kind of stuff was left on the the cutting room floor, because it seems like, for Mills to kind of capture those little slices of life. There had to, you know, it wasn't sort of like they they set the camera down and they said, okay, we're going to get this shot now for, you know, this this montage later. They, this must have been, you know, perhaps an entire scene mm-hmm. of Woody Norman and Scoop McNary interacting in some way. And then Mills just picked a perfect moment to, to slide in. It's almost... It, it, there's a little bit of a shade of Malik in there as well, mm, where you mm-hmm. get the sense that there's this larger uh, tapestry outside of the frame that had to be there in order for us to see what we're seeing.
1: It's also pretty intricate because I think some of the games that Jesse plays with his dad, he also ends up playing with Johnny later on down the line, too. Like I noticed a couple of games where they're like each tapping on the table, um, imitating what the other person mm. is doing. And it's not the exact same game that's being played. And I think that that's important because it's a different relationship that's being had between Jesse and Johnny versus Jesse and his father. But they're both... Both of those interactions are the two of those people paying complete and total attention to this child and giving him what he needs, which is the attention and love and care that, that he so desperately wants.
0: Yeah, the that that dynamic of... of giving giving a person what they what they need i think mm. is something that this film is is very interested and in, interested in and um i think really culminates in an ending that i thought was just was just lovely mm. <laughs> um mm-hmm. <laughs> and i don't want to give too much away about it because i think it's it's best experience kind of uh, you know getting to the end of the film and having that you know that last speech by phoenix mm-hmm. and not really wanting the movie to end yes. and that feeling in the viewer kind of being mirrored in, in the characters themselves. Uh, you know, the, by, by the time the, uh, Johnny and Jesse reach the end of their journey together within the film, there is, uh, some, some grief and some sadness that things are going to go back to quote unquote normal. Mm-hmm. And, um, the, the speech that Phoenix, gives it the end where it digs into the hazy nature of memory and uh what memory is for and how memory functions i thought was really uh, you know wonderfully written mm-hmm. but also just the the delivery by phoenix and the way that again mills cuts back and forth uh from Uh, Phoenix actually speaking to these other shots of other characters going about their lives. I think, again, there's just there's a texture to that that is is simply wonderful and is suggestive of of so much beyond just the literal facts of what the characters are doing uh, in in any given shot.
1: Yeah, it almost feels like a collage effect, which I guess is kind of how memory works to begin with. Um, It's funny, too um mike mills does this thing in all of his movies i think where there will be the main plot and then there will be like moments where he cuts away and he talks about something that's sort of tangentially related but is really more about like the broader truths of the universe like in 20th century women he actually tells you how some of these characters are going to die and how the universe was created um and it's done with like snapshots like still images and this one um I think this was the first movie where those cutaways actually worked a little bit more for me because they felt a little bit more organic. They almost felt like memory, where instead of cutting away to just um, still images, it cuts away to Johnny doing his interviews with the kids that he's meeting with. And then having those kids kind of give the monologue that's normally given where you're talking about, like, this is what's going to happen in the future. This is what's going to happen in the past. And it feels a little bit looser and a little bit more free And a little bit more, um, I don't know, open to different possibilities in a way that just it kind of feels like he's exploring this idea of memory, like as it's being created at that moment in time where all of these kids have all of these ideas about what's going to happen to them in the future and how optimistic or pessimistic they feel about it. Um, And maybe they'll never even remember these interviews that are happening at that same time. And maybe... um, it's something that they'll just sort of vaguely look back on and say, huh, I wonder how that went and then just go about their day. Um, but it's also something that's just it's it's trying to capture a moment that does feel very deeply important in their individual lives and in in Johnny and Jesse's lives as well. Um, and uh, I have completely lost my train of thought so, um, because I'm trying to remember what happened in the movie at the exact same time, too. So the nature of memory uh, <laughs> happening yeah. right here now as well.
0: <laughs> yeah well, and uh, again, that would be an example of of Mills' kind of uh creating a an aesthetic object that allows the that that leads the audience into having a similar mm-hmm. um, to being in a similar emotional state to the characters themselves rather than having the characters be there and and sort of trying having the audience like try to vicariously experience it there's it, it's less vicarious and more like he's giving us direct access mm-hmm. to to that kind of a feeling in it it's simply wonderful and it also allows us access to another quality of of those those cutaways to those interviews which is hope this is a very mm. hopeful film mm-hmm. and a common theme running through a lot of those interviews some of which are with young people who you know may be uh living in more uh economically underprivileged situation or mm-hmm. uh in the case of young people who are being interviewed in new orleans you know young people who may have faced the destruction of their of their livelihood in a very real and immediate way and yet most of these kids look forward to the future with hope or, or with aspiration and think i do think that things will get better and and i hope for that and that's kind of something that um uh, Phoenix's character and and Norman's character Johnny and Jesse they both kind of they also need to to feel that to mm-hmm. to feel like the there's there's darkness in their past and there's difficulties in their future and in their present but somehow there there might be a brightness on the horizon that they can they can move towards and I think it's just it's lovely that this film brings them to that point while bringing the audience along as well mm-hmm,
1: absolutely yeah it's not like a, a linear like three-part structure. By any means, it feels very much more organic, um, and I think that's part of the reason why this works so well is that this is like I don't know, personal growth isn't going to be linear, right? Like you're going to make progress and then you're going to have problems, and it's it's never like a clear cut plot, um, and so I think that this movie like understands that in a fundamental way and decides we're not going to try to force. Um, a very, like, phony plot on these particular characters or on on this relationship. We're just going to see where this relationship takes us. And um, I think both of these characters, Johnny and Jesse, have been dealing with some destabilizing issues in their lifetimes, kind of like these, these kids in New Orleans have as well. And both of them kind of see each other, like, in each other. They're, they're kindred spirits, and they see... Oh, you've been destabilized too. Like maybe we can be outriggers for each other in a way, um, even when we're driving each other nuts. Like there's still this this constancy <laughs> of I have this relationship here, and it's not going to go away. So let's let's get through this together, um, if we can.
0: I want to talk a little bit about the uh, the the reasoning behind the Wizard of Oz popping up uh, throughout this film. Mm. So a bedtime story that uh jesse uh, often has read to him over you know again and again over the course of the film is the wizard of oz and the all the associations i guess that come along with that obviously have to be very intentional on mills's part and i wanted to get your thoughts on you know what what did that uh, speak of for you as you noticed those elements uh in in this movie
1: it's funny um it's been ages since i've read that book and even longer I think since I saw the movie. so I think of very small childhood when I when I hear words from the story or, or when I think about the movie but it's also it's also a story about I think destabilization and then coming back to like a little bit more stability I think um with with the help of friends so I don't know I keep I keep chasing that theme of, relationships being being the thing that keep you afloat uh, in a world gone chaotic. Um, but I don't I don't know if that's necessarily the right read or if there even is a right read. Um, what did you get from I, it?
0: Well, uh, I mean, like, I think that there's that you're really on to something there. And the reason I, I asked the question is because you you'd mentioned earlier about Johnny and Jesse having each other and that kind of being something that allows them to to move forward mm. and you know, the, the perils between that and uh you know, Dorothy and, and her friends trying to meet the wizard, you know, that, that suggests itself. I just, I thought it was really interesting how the, one of the things that Johnny and Jesse do together at the very beginning is they're sort of bonding is Johnny exposing Jesse to the world of, mm. of capturing audio. He has, he mm. has him, walk around with headphones and a microphone and uh just sort of take in the world through those headphones rather than uh simply just uh experiencing it uh without those things um and i mean to in, in way i guess it's a little bit refreshing to see a a filmmaker make a movie where the you know the the character isn't a filmmaker who's you yeah. know, <laughs> e- exposing his young protege to the wonderful world of filmmaking but it's actually Uh, audio Mm -hmm. and i was just thinking about how the the way that these scenes are constructed especially the sound work oh yeah um is almost like a a dorothy opening the door onto oz and going from the the sepia tones to the the full technicolor Mm. world and how um in a way jesse is able to experience the world in in a completely fresh way just by swinging that 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 mic around and picking up the waves or the skateboard wheels or the people talking on the street
2: mm-hmm.
0: and how in, in a way, maybe their, their relationship enables them to kind of experience the world with, with fresh eyes in, in a little bit. I don't know. That's, that's kind of where I, where I was going with it as well. And I think the, the fact that both of those readings seem not just possible, but likely uh, speaks to the, the richness of, of the film as a whole. Maybe. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. 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 I love that read about, um, I don't know, the microphone kind of being the yellow brick road. Um, and I feel mm-hmm. like the movie would have felt a, a little bit less special if they had added color at those points. Um, cause I was, I was wondering to myself, like, I don't fully understand why this movie was shot in black and white. I think it still works for me just because it's so gorgeous. Um, Robbie Ryan's the cinematographer here and uh every single image is just like it's crystal clear. Um so I I don't fully understand why they chose black and white as opposed to color, but I'm glad that they ended up going with just the single dimension and then allowing the the um sound mix and the sound design to really really shine especially in those scenes where they're walking around with a microphone and a pair of headphones.
0: Yeah, well, I think the uh, partly because the visuals are a little bit more muted, that does yeah, that does allow the the sound work, the performances to to really shine. And yeah, no, I think that what we end up with is a really lustrous uh, mm-hmm. object, uh, a really great movie. And I don't know, I would say it's probably one of the best movies of the year.
1: Loved it. Yep, I totally agree with you there.
0: Well, listeners, that is our review of Mike Mills's Come On, Come On. Obviously. Sarah and I both really liked it, but we are interested in your thoughts. So if you've had a chance to see this film, it's uh, currently playing in theaters. We would love to hear your thoughts. You can email us at seeingandbelievingcapc at gmail.com. Or you can shoot us a tweet on the Twitters uh, at seebelievepod. But for now, Sarah, we are reaching the end of our show. And this is traditionally the part of the show where... Uh, each of us shares something from the world of television or film uh, with our listeners. Uh, what do you have to recommend for us this week?
1: Yeah. Um, so Come On, Come On is one of those movies where I kind of found it disarming in like a um, uh, an almost destabilizing way. So I wanted to recommend another movie that did something similar. It's also one of my favorite movies of 2021, and that is Michael Sarnowsky's Pig. Uh, which I believe is available to stream on Hulu and on various other platforms at this point. Um, The premise sounds a little bit silly, if you haven't heard it before. Um, Nicolas Cage plays a truffle hunter who lives in the Oregon woods with his beloved truffle pig, And then she's stolen from him and he goes to try to get her back. And that sounds kind of like, um, I don't know, like John Wick, but with a pig in the Pacific (laughs) Northwest. And this movie is absolutely nothing like that at all. It's kind. It's gentle. um, It's disarming, um, which is a word that I've already said, but that's really the effect that it kind of has on me. It's like it, it de escalates every single situation that happens. Like most most of the time. When you have a movie and there's action that happens, you try to one up yourself throughout this whole course of the movie, because otherwise you'll lose the interest of the audience. And this movie is interested in doing the exact opposite of that. It's interested in making everybody on screen to sort of lay their weapons down and admit to who they are and what it is that they want in life. And then try to find a peaceful solution. Um, and that's just something that like you just don't really get very much at this point. And so it's it's a movie that I absolutely love. There's a lovely cover of a Bruce Springsteen song at the end that made me cry very hard uh, when I saw it in the theater. And I still think about it sometimes. So um, mm. speaking of, of good sound design. Um, so that is my recommendation is Michael Cernoski's Pig.
0: I did not expect Pig to feature one of my favorite Nicolas Cage performances of all time, but so I mean, good. there it is. He's so good in that film. Nicolas Cage is the truth people, and you'd better recognize <laughs> it now. Cause I, I just can't say enough good things about it. I think that's a great recommendation and I'll second it like that. If, if our listeners have a chance to track that down somehow, definitely do it. You won't disappoint. You won't be disappointed. And, um, I don't know. I, I'd recommend definitely... If this is the first you're hearing about it, drop everything and just go watch it. Don't read any reviews beforehand. Just try yes, to go in cold yeah. and enjoy the journey that it takes you on because it it takes you on... It, it does not go to the places you might necessarily expect.
1: I would say a wild ride, but that also feels kind of misleading. Um, but it is mm-hmm. a wild ride. It's so good. It's, what about you, it's, Kevin?
0: It's excellent. Uh, So my recommendation... Is uh, one that I just I, I couldn't resist it because it just seemed so appropriate considering that we are talking about a Mike Mills film in the main part of the show. I'm recommending his uh, short film from 2019. I am easy to find. Um, now this is a a partnership of sorts. He uh, made this in collaboration with the rock band The National, which is you know one of my favorite bands. I like them quite a bit. And for another point of tie in. Uh, two of the members of the National actually wrote the music for "Come On, Come On," which mm-hmm. explains why I liked the the music to that film so much. But um, this film I am easy to find uh, features Alicia Vikander as uh, a young woman, um, and it just sort of follows her uh, over the course of her life as you know people and relationships change around her. The uh, the national album that this short film is paired with provides a lot of the the soundtrack. Uh, so, and I, you know, being a national fan, of course, I like that. But I think mm-hmm. why I'm recommending it is that even if you're not a fan of the band, Mills does a lot of the same textural things with this short film that he does in Come On, Come On, and I think that they both uh use those those uh tactics to their fullest in creating a, an experience that is very difficult to to quantify I guess in terms of why it's it's emotionally affecting but it just works and um you know it's only 26 minutes of your time you can find it on YouTube for free um definitely check it out if you've got a spare half hour it's it's definitely worth it
1: Oh, it's so great. And it's funny. Um, I feel like you, you mentioned, like, if you're not a fan of The National, you should still check it out. I think if you are a fan of The National, it adds additional depth to that whole record as well, because mm. um, I think they use some alternative takes. Um, it doesn't sound exactly like all of the songs on, on the record. Um, some of the takes sound a little bit different. I think they emphasize different singers at different points as well. Um, yes. and yeah, like a lot of that really cool inter- interstitial stuff. He does some cool stuff with subtitles in there, which I think he's always doing in all of his movies. Um, yeah, I'll I'll second that recommendation as well.
0: All right. Well, there, there we go. Those are our recommendations for this week. Sarah, thanks so much for coming on the show. It's always fun to have you on. I'm I'm really looking forward to uh having you on in the future. Um, if any listeners of ours are are wanting to you know, check out some of your writing or or some of your podcasting or anything that you've been working on lately. Uh, Is there anything that you want to point them towards as something recently that you've uh, gotten out into the world?
1: Yeah. um, First, thank you so much for having me. This has been an absolute delight. Um, And second, I have been uh, a little bit more prolific than usual in the past couple of weeks. So on Think Christian, I recently had a piece about Adele's 30 get published um, talking about uh, soul music and the traditions that her record kind of draws on. And then um, for Bright Dark Room, this past week, I also just had a long form review of the movie Dune published there and about all of the ways that that movie didn't really work for me and also all of the ways that it really did work for me. So um, you can find both of those online um, and you can also find me on Twitter at dodgy boffin. I am unfortunately extremely online, but i always down to shout about movies and especially about science fiction.
0: <laughs> awesome. Well, uh, yeah, I'm looking forward to reading that Dune piece specifically. Uh, I, we, we had a conversation uh, a while ago mm-hmm. after Dune came out about, you know, what we both thought about that film and, Um, it's, it's got me excited to read your, your thoughts in that essay because yeah, there's, there's a lot to say about it for sure. There's
1: so much there. Yeah. Dune heads hit me up.
0: Well, listeners, that is our show for today. Seeing and Believing is brought to you by the Christ and Pop Culture Podcast Network. Our producer is Jonathan Clausen, who every week helps us to search for the sacred on screen. I'm your host, Kevin McLenathan. I was joined this week by Sarah Welch Larson, and we'll see you next week on Seeing and Believing. You have been listening to Seeing and Believing, an official production of the Christ and Pop Culture Podcast Network. Please rate and review the
1: show on iTunes and check out our other shows at slash network. Theme music by Alexander Osborne and Lindsay Miz, used under Creative Commons License 3.0.
0: This episode was brought to you in part by the audio adventure series Discovery Mountain. Help your kids fall in love with the Bible. Each true-to-life adventure story will draw them closer to Jesus. Visit discoverymountain.com/ct